Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Gerald Harris, and I am chair of the club's technology and society forum, and will be your host for today. This afternoon's program and the club's new virtual efforts are generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a collaborative of local funders and donors. Today's program features Dr. Susan Snyder, who recently wrote a book entitled Artificial You, AI and the Future of the Mind. This program will be moderated by Jill Epstein, a former president and current member of the club's board of governors, who will introduce Dr. Snyder and lead the discussion. And now, take it away, Joe. Thank you very much, General Harris. Dr. Schneider, Susan, if I may. It's really great to finally get to do this Commonwealth Club special interview with you. Thanks for your commitment to make this program happen. Since your mom and dad have been friends of mine for many years, it's a particular pleasure for me to have this opportunity. But before we begin, and for those who may not know, uh, you let me just say a few words about you. Dr. Susan Schneider grew up in Tracy, California, where her father is a high school football coaching legend and a member of the Football Coaches Hall of Fame. Susan went to public school, but she did reject football as a career and Sue moved on to get a BA degree from the University of California at Berkeley, graduating with honors. She then received her PhD in philosophy at Rutgers University. Dr. Schneider is currently an associate professor at the University of Connecticut and is the NASA Baruch Blumberg Chair of Astrobiology. Dr. Schneider currently holds a distinguished chair at the Library of Congress and is a director there. She has been featured by the New York Times, Science Magazine, Nautilus Magazine, the Smithsonian, and has made numerous TV and radio appearances on PBS, the History Channel, and more. She's written four books, The Language of Thought, The Blackwell Companion of Consciousness, Science Fiction and Philosophy, and of course, her new book, Artificial You. Susan, as my favorite CNN news anchor, Chris Cuomo says, let's get after it. So I have some questions. Uh, and the first one uh, has to do about religion. Uh, religion plays an important part in the lives of many of us. But true believers think that God has designed us as humans with anatomical and evolutionary constraints each of us being designed as individuals a little different from each other. So in mind design, you talk about the artificial enhancement of our natural or God-given minds, stating that mind design is done by humans and not God. Do you expect a backlash as you proceed on mind design from some of these religious groups because of your stated position? think so. I mean, who knows though, like, you know, but um, I worked with the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton. In fact, the last event I just did involved an interview uh, 
by Will Storer, who runs the center. Um, and I think that the challenge here, as I discuss, is really that as AI technology gets better and better, the next logical step in the development of AI, like it or not, is to go inside the head. So AI will not just change the world around us, creating smarter robots, uh, better Google searches and whatnot. It may create better minds. And so as a philosopher, I think I have something to say that even theologians will appreciate, which is if we are going inside the head, we better ask what the fundamental nature of the self and mind really is. And I call this mind design, the idea that AI might sculpt the human brain, because it's a form, believe it or not, of intelligent design, right? But we, not some God, purport to be the designers. So this is really humbling. We better think it through. Well, this really is much different to what the evangelicals said many, many years ago and took many of us by surprise and by, and by shock when they talked about intelligent design. They didn't mean what you mean as mind design. <laughs> no, and I did a movie with Richard Dawkins and he says it's intelligent design. Richard Dawkins in the film, in the, in the preview. So I think that the point here is not to go back to the debates, you know, about evolution and all of that. It's to think about something very different here that we can all agree that if AI technology and neurotechnology starts to tweak the human brain in ways that, you know, I can talk about today, we're purporting to design the brain. And so it is intelligent design or unintelligent design if we do a bad idea. So we still evolve, but the evolution is partly in our own hands. So the evolutionary forces, they're not entirely Darwinian. Tell us, uh, Susan, a little bit more about your reference to the Carl Sagan film, Contact. We talk about a dialogue between the alien and a human being in the film. And you say, our social development lags behind our technological prowess. What do you mean by this statement? And how will the development of AI affect the growth of our social development? Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, um, that's my favorite film. Carl Sagan wrote um, lines in it. And I believe it was derived from him, his work. And that's a moment in the film where Jodie Foster's character meets for the first, like first ever human contact, a sophisticated alien being. And the alien being is sort of depicted as being like her father. Like visually she sees her father who's deceased because that's supposed to comfort her. And he says, you're an interesting species. You have such extraordinary potential, I'm paraphrasing. You know, you you can do all kinds of wonderful things technologically, but you're also such a cruel species. And 
you know, I, I love that moment in the film, although I can't remember the lines verbatim, because I think it's reflective of what happens with emerging technologies. Often, our emerging technologies are developed in ways that are not socially wise. So our technological prowess is ahead of our social ability to see the proper use of these technologies. And I think that's why it's important that we discuss AI regulation and the future of artificial intelligence. Um, because if we get this wrong, um, there could be catastrophic consequences. And we've already seen misuses of AI technology. I mean, there are algorithms that discriminate because their data is bad. Um, there are deep fake videos, which, you know, could get in the wrong hands and tweak people's sense of reality. There are internet bubbles. Um, you know, there are all kinds of bad uses of the technology and the technology itself isn't intrinsically bad. But if we just sit back and, you know, let AI companies only decide what the proper uses of the technology is without regulation, without public discussion, that's not a good thing. Well, we're going to get to some questions a little later on about the regulation of, of AI. Um, but I want to get to your, what I call your central theme or your primary theme, at least as I took it in the book and in other writings, and it has to do with consciousness and consciousness engineering. So with consciousness being the philosophical cornerstone of our moral existence, I take it that consciousness is what separates one as a self or a person from automation. You talk about smelling your coffee in the morning or appreciating a sunset. I guess this is consciousness as, as, as you develop it. So talk about the ethical dilemma you refer to in your book between human consciousness and synthetic consciousness, along with the general term and topic of consciousness. Awesome. So yeah, consciousness is the felt quality of experience. So throughout your waking life, and even when you're dreaming, it always feels like something from the inside to be you. So, you know, yes, the, the lovely aroma of your coffee, but also bad things like the feeling of a bad headache. All of these things are conscious experience. And it's important that we note that it is the fact that we're conscious beings, which makes joy and suffering so meaningful. Um, and if you believe that non-human animals feel, um, it's what makes it ethically important that we treat them well as well. The fact that they too are conscious beings. So consciousness is morally significant. Suffering is bad. And we want AI to de be developed in a way that ensures that humans flourish. Now, there's a question here about synthetic consciousness. That is, would machines be capable of feeling something? Would it feel like something to be an AI? We see this depicted in a lot of science fiction. Think of Rachel in Blade Runner, for example. Um, or the little boy in the Spielberg film, AI. Um, films tug at our heartstrings. I urge, however, that it's far from clear 
that we could develop conscious AI. We don't currently know if microchips are the right stuff, if you will, to underlie conscious experience. And I developed tests uh, at Princeton University um, with Edwin Turner, um, a professor of astrophysics, a professor of astrophysics there, on ways to determine whether the machines can be conscious. So I think there's a lot of issues here and our kind of initial feeling might be that machines can be conscious, but I urge that we should take a wait and see approach and test it. And that there are a lot of reasons why AI companies may not even want to develop conscious systems. So I talk about consciousness engineering, the possibility that certain companies may deliberately engineer consciousness out of machines. Or conversely, some AI designers might choose to actually engineer consciousness into machines. So sort of like Anthony Hopkins' character in Westworld. Well, how, how can you not love a machine like R2-D2? Uh, for example, I think, I think this question follows naturally. It's a great segue. You make a reference to robots like R2-D2 of uh, Star Wars fame, and the TV program, The Jetsons. And you said that the Jetsons were surrounded by AI all the time, but they remained unenhanced themselves. And I, I couldn't quite get why. Was it just too early in the game for the writers of The Jetsons to incorporate <laughs> artificial enhancement in their script for the program? And yeah, and like Star Wars too. Um, in Star Wars, R2-D2's awesome, right? And tugs at the heartstrings, but the humans are unenhanced. Um, but the historian Michael Best says that we're all committing what he calls the Jetsons fallacy, assuming that in the future, we will have worlds in which humans themselves are unenhanced by the AI technologies, but all around us are these amazing robots like Rachel and Blade Runner or R2-D2. Um, I actually urge, as I mentioned, that we just don't know yet if we will even build conscious machines and we need to really think hard about whether we want to and in what context we would want to. But people are going to inevitably assume that something like R2-D2 with squeaks and is cute is conscious. And I call that the cute and fluffy fallacy, yeah. right? Similarly, you know, if you see an Android that looks human and there already are very human looking androids under development in Japan to take care of the elderly population, for example, it's very easy to assume that because they look human, at least from a distance, it feels like something to be them. And I think that's, that's dangerous from a moral standpoint, because if you assume something is conscious when it's not, you're including it in the domain of moral consideration, right? With other conscious beings. And that can lead to very bad things. I mean, if an AI that looks human is simply not conscious, but fools people, there could be trade-offs, situations where we have to decide how many people die. Like, you know, Philosophers talk about trolley problems. So, you know, you've got a train going down the tracks, and if it goes to the left, it kills four humans. If it goes 
to the right, it kills five androids. Which do you choose? Well, if you believe those androids are sentient, if it feels like something to be those androids, but you're wrong. If you believe it feels, you know, like they're conscious, but they're not, then you've killed four humans to save five androids that aren't conscious. Robotics are so amazing. Uh, I just had a, my wife and I just had a brief experience a few months ago visiting our grandson who's a freshman at uh, Purdue. Uh, unfortunately, he's learning now in, in a distance way because of the virus. Yeah. So they, he was pointing out robots on the sidewalk in Purdue delivering food to the students in the dorms. And we would follow them and the robots would actually stop at a stop signal not because they saw the red light, but because the student in front of them or to the side of them was not going across the street. The student was watching the red light. The robot seemed to be, at least that's the way it was explained to us. The robot was watching the student. But anyhow, that was an amazing experience for us to see. Um, this is my first venture in really trying to learn about AI. So I really appreciate the opportunity read your book and to talk with you about this. But the first thing I thought about was Mary Shelley's character in her 19th century book, Frankenstein, the Modern Prometheus. And she writes about Victor Frankenstein, who created the Frankenstein monster. I still have nightmares about that. Is there any scientific relevance to Mary Shelley's writings? Oh, yeah. Frankenstein is canonical in the field of bioethics. Um, you know, people thinking about the ethics of emerging technologies often think of the storyline in which, you know, technology goes awry and a monster is created. Um, and it really resonates when it comes to debates about artificial intelligence because there's a lot of discussion right now about the safe use of artificial intelligence. And, you know, some people think that if we develop intelligence that rivals humans at the level of intelligence that we have, it could be quite dangerous because the machine could eventually surpass us in intelligence and become what is called super intelligent AI, a hypothetical form of AI that is able to outthink humans in every way possible, social skills, scientific reasoning, and more. And so, you know, Mary Shelley envisions this machine, I mean, this creature, which is very dangerous to its creators. And so, you know, we have to bear in mind the possibility that we may be playing with fire. Right. Uh, one of your largest concerns is what happens to privacy? and security in a society where people have merged their minds with artificial growth. You've been touching on this uh, in your first few answers. In this case, wouldn't hacking of the mechanisms of artificial growth be a danger with cybercrime and hacking existing at an alarming rate today? What is to prevent an artificially enhanced human brain from extreme risks? Good question. Um, so I work with Congress um, in Washington on artificial intelligence legislation, and I've had the pleasure of presenting my book to Congress. Um, 
And there are a lot of here and now issues, which are super important. And I think relate a lot to the issue of whether AI should go inside the head. So right now, you can already tell that when you're using your smartphone, it's collecting data, right? These apps are selling your data to the highest bidder. And some of us are really irritated by that. And sometimes people lose important information. It's made public. Um, we've seen elections tampered with by foreign powers. We've seen all sorts of misuses of algorithms already. So if AI technology is something that then becomes, you know, encoded in a microchip, goes inside your head, in principle, without careful regulations, your thoughts could be sold to the highest bidder. And the example I like to use is, suppose you download your memories of your child's first few years onto a brain chip, and then it becomes part of your cloud subscription. You keep paying every month to keep those memories, but you somehow lose access. Maybe you don't have the money or maybe some nefarious government steals access to your data. Then your innermost thoughts are somewhere else, right? So I think there's a lot we have to do to get it right. I don't mean to sound grim during a pandemic. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, but the reason I bring these things up is to actually avoid, you know, awful stuff from happening. Right. And I think given what's going on right now with uh, AI, it's good to have these kinds of conversations so that we can make our future better and make sure that our children and our grandchildren don't encounter these kinds of problems. I just had another flashback to my grandson at Purdue uh, as I'm looking at another question that I think we're going to segue to. Uh, Hopefully he'll listen to this program and he'll give me his thoughts on this. But uh, I think there's a shortage of STEM jobs, STEM education, STEM jobs. A recent article in the New York Times Magazine indicates that in a faster tech world of 5G speeds, there's a shortage, shortage of people with a solid knowledge of STEM disciplines. The article specifically refers to calculus. And can you talk about this and tell us about the importance of calculus itself as part of the STEM education in the writing of algorithms, which is, as I understand it, the lifeblood of AI? Well, I think the really important thing here is that there's just a lack of suitable training. There's like um, at various universities, they're quickly trying to create data ethics and AI programs, data science programs, where people are getting not just coding skills and mathematical skills, but they're also thinking about the social impact of technologies so that as a society, these students are trained right and we're better able to handle the technological challenges that the future brings. I mean, one thing to consider is the future of work and how AI affects it. Um, you know, if you're thinking, if I have a college age child and, you know, it's really interesting to think that there are a lot of projections right now that AI will outmode us in the workforce. 
So we're already seeing, you know, supermarket checkers, autonomous vehicles are under development, um, you know, all kinds of technologies that will create unemployment. And so the challenge here for our young people that are interested in STEM education is really how to frame themselves in an intellectually rich way so that they can respond to possible changes in the labor force because things are going to change and they're going to change rapidly. And so that's why I think actually there's an importance to having a broad ranging liberal arts education, not just mathematics, which I I love, but, you know, other areas, philosophy, um, political science, Joey, I know you, you said you studied that at Berkeley. We were just talking about it. Yeah. So I think, you know, really, we need to focus on on that as well as getting good training at the universities um, in data science, AI, and the ethical uses of technology. Right. Um, so we we did mention before we went on air, Doctor Doctor Russell, and I want to just give you the proper key on this. So Russell's premise, and you're 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 going to be doing some work, as I understand it, with Doctor Russell. Dr. Russell is at Berkeley, you said? Yes. Um, so we're talking about Stuart Russell, who wrote Stuart the book Russell. Human Compatible. And I think in a week or so, we're doing a joint event at the Mechanics Institute online. All right. So his premise in his book entitled Human Compatible is how would you place uh, his concern uh, with designing super intelligent machines and that they should be designed to have objectives that are in line with our own or your own or that whoever is designing that machine. So the machine should not run off on a tangent. It should be designed to uh, do what it was supposed to do. So do you agree with that premise? Uh, and how would you place a safety net in this design to make sure that undesirable results would not occur from, for example, supercomputers uh, and to make sure that Dr. Russell's design objectives are met? A lot of people agree with Stuart. In fact, there's something called the control problem, which um, was articulated by Nick Bostrom in a New York Times bestseller called Superintelligence. And so the issue here is how do you control a superintelligent AI should exist? Because, you know, it seems like every way that we can control the machine, the machine can outthink. So, you know, you might think, well, good kill switch. Well, you know, it's going to think about that. It's going to think of other ways to bypass kill switches. You might think, well, bake in some algorithms with ethical coding. Well, no two philosophers can agree about what the proper ethical system is for the first thing. And then also think about the famous genie in a, in a bottle case where you get three wishes, right? That, uh, you know, and the wishes are, you think that they would be okay the way you state them, right? But the thing is, if you don't state them right, what you see is what we call a perverse implementation of what you want. Because there are a million ways in general that people will misunderstand you, right? So a machine, if you code in an instruction to the machine, 
there are a million ways it could go wrong, right? I mean, think about it like, all right, machine, I want you to end global warming. Well, what if it decides then to knock out the human race? Because we are, in fact, the cause, quite possibly, of global warming. And that would be not what we wanted. So I think it's a super tricky issue. I don't have, you know, a great suggestion. I think let many flowers bloom. And there are, there's a lot of work on the control problem. My suggestion, I do have, a, you know, a humble suggestion is that we learn more about whether machines are conscious. Because if you think about it, think about your dog or cat, okay? Why is it it's so awful when your dog is in pain or your cat is in pain? It's because you're a conscious being. You know what it feels like to be in pain. And you believe that your dog or cat feels something too. So consciousness is what makes you kind. It's the fact that, you have a kind of inner sense that it's bad to harm, right? Well, if a machine is conscious, perhaps that is the key. So maybe through experimentation to see what consciousness would do to the parameters of an AI, we might be able to help solve the control problem. But that's on the assumption that we can even build conscious machines. And we again, we just don't know because we don't even know what microchips would be used. There's so many different kinds of microchips under development right now. So. Well, I want to, I want to talk about a conscious being. Uh, I don't think a discussion about AI would be complete without talking about Elon Musk. As you say, Musk is pushing a product line of enhancements. You have the Tesla car with driverless car capabilities. You've got privately designed and owned rockets. Uh, previously unimagined portable power, which stems from modern day batteries. Uh, so give us your view on Elon Musk and his relevance into today's world of AI. Thank you, Elon, for my cars. You should see what's out front right now and how fast I drive it. Zero to 60 and what is it like 3.8? So I like him. Okay. But on a serious note, I complained about him in my book. So don't turn off my car. Um, here's, here's my worry, right? So in the domain of AI, um, he's doing great things actually with AI safety, but when it comes to AI in the head, the idea um, that he promotes is that humans should merge with artificial intelligence through the use of brain chips in the head, okay? So he founded a company called Neuralink, and that company's goal is to make brain chips as commonplace as LASIK so that you and I when we feel like we need to keep our jobs to, you know, outthink AI, to stay marketable or whatever, can go in to a brain enhancement center and buy a chip to stay smart or get smarter. And that worries me for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, like I said a minute ago, um, we don't even have AI technology 
now that respects our privacy. So we need to be really, really careful. Um, science fiction writers have long depicted science fiction dystopias involving brain chips and whatnot. But the other issue, which I actually discuss in about half of the book, actually, that I'm really worried about is if you or I decide we want to enhance our brain in radical ways, and you say do this at some mind design center, if you will, at what point, when you add all these chips, are you still even you? At some point, are you so radically transformed that you've actually ceased to exist so that you walk into the Center for Mind Design, you pay buckets of money, you order all kinds of funky brain chips to get you to do all kinds of things like you can, you know, echolocation like a bat, you can meditate like a Zen master, you can calculate um, like a savant, but at some point you paid money and you've died in there. Sorry, again, I, I, when I wrote this book, there was not a pandemic. <laughs> well, I think your car is going to be safe outside. Hopefully Elon Musk will watch this program. It'd be interesting for him. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times and it got written up like all over the place. It was like the big news item for AI for the week. And I wonder if it messed up their stock because I was complaining about them. Yeah. I use this thought experiment, which I think is great. It's like, um, you know, suppose you go into a center for mind design and you start replacing, you know, parts of your brain with chips. And so you buy the works. What's the works? Well, the works allows you to fully replace every part of your brain with microchips so that at the end of the day, you're actually, you have an artificial brain. Well, I call that brain drain because if you believe that the self is the brain and the nervous system or the mind is enabled by the brain, you have just paid money and scooped out your brain so you're dead. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the pandemic and <laughs> probably anticipated that we couldn't get through this program without discussing it. Uh, the COVID-19 virus seems to be the elephant in the room today. And when discussing possible medical advances through enhanced artificial capacity, my belief is that we may not return to a true normal until we have a vaccine against the coronavirus. So wouldn't it be possible to accelerate the creation of a vaccine with high-speed supercomputers to help us understand and mitigate COVID-19? Couldn't these computers be helpful in developing testing data that may ordinarily take one to two years to do and reduce that time significantly? I'm a little skeptical of a vaccine since um, we don't have vaccines for other coronaviruses. But yes, in principle, AI, because it can calculate at such an extraordinary rate, and sift through so much data, it could be tremendous in medicine and for finding disease cures. And indeed, many of the world's supercomputers are at work right now on the issue. And it may be that they find instead of a vaccine, they find a treatment too. And in fact, um, you know, there are 
drugs that have been identified as possibilities by AI technology. Um, and that, I think, is an exciting use of AI. I think that the potential here for AI in medicine is so great. I mean, if you think about medical errors, human error, if we had AI watching and advising physicians so that errors in medical diagnoses don't happen as often, that could be transformative. But that's why we need data regulation so that our privacy is protected, so that we can be confident in sharing our medical data. I think the future of AI has been changed by COVID in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So the underlying theme, the groundbreaking theme in your book is really a suggestion, a suggestion that in order to maintain intellectual parity with advances in AI, some of us should really consider surgically adding a microchip to our brain. You talked about that, going to the center of mind design and picking out what you want, what you want to accomplish from a menu of things. But you also wrote about this as an op-ed piece in the New York Times, as you stated. And by the way, I have to say this, the editor of the op-ed page, you probably know where I'm going with this, referred to your article as fiction. So is it fiction at all, or is this really the next phase of true AI? Oh, oh yeah. Um the editor asked me to do something for a series called Op-Eds from the Future, in which you skip ahead like 30 years and you write from the vantage point of where you think science and technology will be. That was a fun series. You should read that series if you like science fiction and AI. Um, that was really cool. Um, so. Yeah, so Joey, um, did you have more question though? Because that, I, I'm not sure I answered all of what you said. Well, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's basically I wanted to know, okay. uh, if you had any retort to the, to the editor because he asked you to write the article and he's saying, well, it's fiction. That doesn't sound like it might be a criticism. It just sounds. Oh, like no, no, she, she, who by the way was Times Woman of the Year, now the, uh, page editor over at the New York Times. Uh, had requested me to do it. Um, and the other people who did it were really interesting. They did really good work. Um, like Chang, the guy who wrote the film Arrival, he's a great science fiction writer. He did a great one. Um, so anyway, that was really cool. It's a good series. You can read that. Um, I think it's important to grab futurists and make them think about where it's all headed. And I do consider myself a futurist. I agree. Okay. Uh, I just want to m- mention to uh, our host, uh, Gerald Harris, that I have maybe a couple more questions that I want to uh, put on your platter, Susan, and then uh, maybe Gerald can bring in the questions that he's now receiving on the Internet for you. Uh, so one of the questions is that human-level AI is still the stuff of science fiction, according to some people. I believe that in your work for NASA, you've studied the possibility of machine life existing on other planets. You refer to this as alien intelligence. Can you discuss this, please? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I had a project with NASA on this, and now I'm the NASA chair. And so my work is very theoretical because I'm a philosopher, 
Um, and what I was interested in was this. Okay, there's a lot of research on exoplanets, um, these planets that people claim who identify them are in principle planets that could be habitable. They're Earth-like, okay? They're friendly to life as we know it. But are they really inhabited? We just don't know, right? And we actually don't really know exactly how life sprung up on Earth. Um, there's still a lot of active research on that in the field of astrobiology. But let's assume that these exoplanets, um, some of them are actually inhabited, okay? Which would be exciting. There could be life elsewhere. Let's make that assumption. And let's further assume that some of those planets survive their own technological maturity. So they avoid stupid stuff, nuclear war that, you know, kills everybody, global catastrophes. Sorry, I didn't mean to get back to catastrophes. And so anyway, these civilizations thrive. And as they develop, they start flipping on their own computers. They start enhancing their brains with AI technology. Well, if that's all happening elsewhere, if other worlds have AI revolutions, then I think there's something really interesting that we can say about alien life. The most intelligent aliens may be post-biological. They may be synthetic beings that sprung up from biological civilizations. So I think that's a trip. And I do, I'm sorry to say it, I think machines can eventually outthink us. Well, I'm not going to end on that note, although it would be a good place to end and give us a lot to think about. But I do have uh, just one more question, and it happens to be a legal one. I know you're a philosopher. Uh, you're, an, you're an astro-philosopher, if, if I can use that term. But here's the legal question. In the United States, do the same laws apply to the intellectual property rights used in the creation of the database underlying the creation of AI? as they do for other intellectual property. And do you think companies are protective of these property rights when doing business, for example, in China? And how about the Chinese? Might they be aggressively pursuing the theft of American AI technology? Or maybe they're even ahead of us in that area. Ooh, you're asking a philosopher about the law? All right, I'll do my best. <laughs> Algorithms are like really hard to copyright or patent because I've tried. Uh -huh. So I work sometimes with the uh, business office at Unicorn. I've had some fun conversations with them, you know, because um, we tried to patent one of my AI tests. Princeton actually um, is trying to patent it. Um, so intellectual property is tricky with algorithms. You know, how do you... Uh, how do you even patent it? Now, in terms of China, okay, are they ahead of us? The word on the street in Washington is, no, they're not. Are they listening to our conversations online like mine? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Half of my website visits are from China. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, but I mean, that doesn't mean that we can't work together. 
right? In a sense, I mean, we have got to come together globally. The U.S. needs to protect its strategic supremacy. I'm a bit of a hawk. But at the same time, we all want to work as a team, right? We're out to promote human flourishing as much as we can. I thought that was a great answer. And with that, Gerald, let me turn it over to you. Okay, I think I'm uh, back here. And I really enjoyed that. Can you all hear me well? Yeah. Good. Uh, Susan, I have a lot of good chatter here, but let me just tell you some of the things I picked up, and maybe you can comment on them. Uh, one in particular is that there's just a lot of distrust of sort of human intentions, and uh, you picked up on a little bit of it with uh, sort of, you know, what China might do, as we know, uh, China did a leap ahead on uh, gene editing and gene edited a couple of babies and stuff. So is there some set of values or oversight or whatever uh, that you can envision so that the level of distrust and fear that people have about this can be addressed at all? I think we're right to think that the ethical limits that our businesses and our military follow may not be followed by authoritarian dictatorships. And we need to anticipate that, but it does not mean that we should violate our sense of what's right. And we need to also understand that regimes change and respond to global pressures. Yeah, great. So if you were to list maybe one or two sort of overarching values, anything pop up for you there? Global regulation is not something that I would you know, have particular ideas on when it comes to AI. Let me just say, I oppose a global ban on the development of super intelligent AI. I don't think it would work. Okay. We are now, you know, in the United States working on all sorts of privacy regulations. And there, you know, I don't know what you do with authoritarian dictatorships that have absolutely no sense of the import of privacy and are actually using AI to exploit their people, right? I mean, they have these sesame point systems. It's kind of like Facebook gone insane, right? Where people tell on each other. I mean, I lived in a communist country, by the way. I went to college uh, in the Eastern Bloc under communism. So I've seen this kind of thing. And, you know, we may not be able to stop it, but we need to just say, like, let's try to exert pressure to encourage more openness and humane treatment of people. Great. Um, there was a lot of, as you would imagine, uh, people talking about your science fiction. And I know you mentioned Westworld uh, in some of your comments. There's this giant 
computer involved that knows and judges everything and controls everybody uh, on that show. Uh, so can you talk about AI being, you know, sort of embedded in the in the system, not an individual, but in the system in some kind of way that's uh, surveilling and monitoring and judging and all that? Can you comment on that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the philosopher Michel Foucault, who, Joey, by the way, he was a professor at Berkeley, very oh. colorful, interesting guy, um, wonderful writer, and he wrote of the Panopticon which, you know, was not written about in the context of AI, but he thought about disciplinary institutions like prisons. And, you know, when you have a central watcher, it changes the social dynamic if you're always feeling like you're being watched, right? I mean, knowledge is power. um, And data is the ultimate form of knowledge. And so we need to be as humble as possible with our use of AI because, I mean, this is the age of surveillance capitalism. Money-hungry AI companies, they make the apps, they make the programs to get your data. That's the economic model. And I think that's a bad economic model. I'm all, I'm pro-business. I think, you know, it's very important that we have a data economy, but I think that model is something that's intrinsically messed up. So, you know. Sure, sure. Uh, let me switch forward a little bit uh, in terms of how these systems can sort of tweak into our lives. And one of them is in the military. Uh, and as you know, a lot of things are done to, uh, for, for medical purposes, a lot of breakthroughs in terms of uh, uh, you know, systems that people walk or folks their airplanes and all these kinds of things. Can you imagine that these brain implants that you were talking about, there's some benevolent use of those that uh, comes out of uh, helping people who are injured or something like that? Yes. Um, in fact, Ted Berger at USC has an artificial hippocampus that's already in phase two clinical trials. So the hippocampus is part of the brain that allows you to encode new memory into long-term memory store. And there are people right now who have damaged hippocampuses and who can't lay down new memory. And Berger's been working on this project for 15 years, and he's really done wonderful work. And so that area of research is involving the use of brain implant technology not for the purpose of enhancing ordinary people, but for therapeutic purposes. And I think that's transformative. It can't happen quick enough. It's very exciting. Think about locked-in patients. Um, you know, and I'm very excited to be on a project with the Templeton Foundation on these issues. So, you know, we can contrast the use of invasive brain enhancement technologies in ordinary people who you know, don't have brain disorders from neural prosthetics, a class of medical items that could be transformative. I mean, think of the use of AI in the head for Parkinson's patients right now. I mean, you may know someone whose tremors have gone away because they've had that implant. Great. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, one day... 
I, I mean, I don't mean to sound like a Luddite. I think if we get it right, if we move forward with constructive AI regulations, you know, not, I'm, I, I wouldn't want to see this in an authoritarian dictatorship, right? I would want to see in a free society, the option for people to actually upgrade their minds if they'd like to. But what I stress in the book is you better think, what is the mind? What is the self? What is the person? These are classic philosophical issues, and they have actually no easy answer. And that's where I encourage the reader to think hard about what it is to be a self. What is it? I mean, if you're religious, you have to think about the nature of the soul, right? I mean, would you... What would happen to your soul if you removed various parts of your brain and replaced them? Well, you could die, so you could be ending your earthly life, and maybe there'd be some other creature there, but it wouldn't be the case that your soul is correlated with the existence of that creature. So depending upon what you think the self is, that can make a huge difference to whether you should enhance it all. Some philosophers think there's no such thing as a persisting self. And in fact, that is um, something that Buddhists have long discussed, as well as the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche. Um, Hume famously had that kind of a position. Maybe that's the case. If you believe that, if you think you're going into a mind design center to survive that's not right because there is no survival if there's no self okay let me let me throw a curveball on you on that one uh you may have seen this a couple weeks ago 60 minutes had a piece on where there was some deep like almost 10 days of recording of people who were holocaust survivors um and it was recorded from all these different angles and then they put it in a uh you know, some kind of machine, and you could literally go in and ask that person a question, and some intelligence system will go through all of that and give you uh, the the answer that that person had recorded. But I'm wondering if you even see that in the hand further, that once the AI saw the pattern of that person's thinking, uh, they can answer all kinds of questions because it knows the model which this person is thinking. So in, in essence, you are extending the consciousness of that person uh, in a very interesting way. So, and this seems to be something that people are already doing because they, you know, they, it was on 60 minutes, so apparently they know how to do it. But what's your thinking about that kind of uh, almost life or consciousness extension? I don't think your consciousness would be extended, but I think it's an important technology. So think about it like this. Suppose you're getting into your 80s and you want your great-grandchildren to know you. So you pay money to a corporation to create a digital you that uses algorithms to answer questions the way you would, and you record content. I mean, it sounds kind of like that. That could be a wonderful way for your grandchildren to know you, but it wouldn't really be you. Your consciousness dies with you, and just because you create a a computer program that mimics your behavior 
doesn't mean that you continue to survive in a real sense. I mean, maybe metaphorically, right? But I think virtual reality technology and augmented reality, you know, has amazing potential to educate people about the plight of others. So, you know, I've often told people about how about VR in schools? So instead of reading about Rosa Parks in the back of the bus, let the kids go to the back of the bus and experience people staring them down and experiencing fear for yourself. Say, you know, I think some of the concentration camp things would scare the kids to death. And VR is so vivid, right? You certainly have to be careful about that. You don't want to inspire trauma. But I mean, the use of virtual reality and augmented reality technology for these kinds of purposes could be transformative. Great. I'm going to turn it back over to Joe. You've both done a fantastic job. Thank you so much for sharing your intelligence and ideas. Joe, you may want to close it off and say thank you as well. Sure. Thank you uh, very much, Gerald Harris. Uh, I just wanted to uh, comment, actually, on that last question, because I thought about uh, asking Dr. Schneider uh, that question. In fact, we spoke about it about a week ago on the phone, and um, I, I saw the 60 Minutes program, and what came to my mind is the expression that is used not only amongst Jewish people, but amongst many people nowadays, which is never forget. And so the recreation of uh, the testimony uh, in the Shoah Project, which is a Steven Spielberg uh, a nonprofit, uh, and they, they've acquired for years test, live testimony from people that experienced the Holocaust uh, camp victims. Those people are almost gone now. I know a few, they're almost gone. Uh, and so the value to me uh, was the never forget that those that come after us, our children and grandchildren, will be able to remember such a terrible event so that it never has a chance to reappear again. Uh, but thank you very much, Gerald, for uh, asking me to uh, do this program. And, and I want to say thanks to Dr. Susan Schneider, philosopher, futurist, not lawyer, but with knowledge of intellectual property law. Thanks to all of you for listening to this program of the Commonwealth Club of California. And to those of you who submitted questions for this program, please check our website for future programs. Tonight's program and the club's new virtual efforts are, as Gerald said earlier, generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a collaborative of local funders and donors. We're grateful for their support and we hope that others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times. And now this meeting, the Commonwealth Club of California, it's the place where you are in the know, is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. 
Thank you for listening and for your support.